This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. His name is Jonathan Trimble, and he is the CEO of Anrising. They work with the world's fastest growing scale-ups, helping them to become universally loved brands. Essentially, they're a VC for innovative brands and companies and become their creative arm in the process. Founders would have had to have used their investment to pay for an agency anyway, so why not just partner with them so their incentives are aligned from the beginning because both of them have a real stake in the success of the venture. He says, five years from now, we won't even recognize most brands on the marketplace and most brands that people see as universal. So we have a deep dive into the state of the traditional agency model today and why he made the pivot into his new model. If you are even remotely interested in venture capital in the agency space, then you will find this conversation to be absolutely fascinating. Disclaimer, we've got a little bit of background noise in this one. He lives in London, so of course you're hearing trains, buses and ambulances. We've done our best to minimise it as much as possible, but trust me when I say that you won't even hear all of that because you'll be so focused on what Jonathan has to say. So without me keeping you in suspense any further, my conversation with Jonathan Trimble. Jonathan Trimble is the CEO of Anne Rising, a creative partner to the world's fastest growing scale-ups, helping them to become universally loved brands of tomorrow. He has held senior roles at Adam and Eve, DDB and Fallon London. I'm very much looking forward to the conversation. Jonathan Trimble, welcome to Agency Dealmasters. Hello, thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure having you on the show. Your career background and history is absolutely fascinating, especially what you're doing now with Anne Rising, which we'll get into in much more detail a little bit later. But let's start with a little bit of context for everyone that's listening. So you get your degree from the University of London in French in 1998, and then you start your career at VML YNR before heading over to Adam and Eve, then to Fallon London. What first attracted you to the world of advertising? So I think it's probably the same as a lot of people. It's just the combination of business and creativity. Um, arts and commerce, whatever you want to call it. That was probably the real attraction. I think, again, probably like a lot of people didn't didn't know that there were certain industries where those two things came together. Um, it was a perfect option. So then I, I, I spent all of my time basically trying to get in. Mm. So I was sort of very fortunate in that I, I found out about the industry. It was a perfect match for kind of my outlook and things that I wanted to do and to some extent skills that I had and then could just focus on how do I get in, how do I get in and did a couple of summers of work placements and were just constantly knocking on doors, basically, and eventually uh, went in through the milk round at uh, what was then YNR, now VML YNR, yeah. So those early experiences at um, YNR and Adam and Eve, I'm, I'm sure gave you a pretty good grounding in terms of how the creative process works. What did you take away from those early experiences at those agencies that really helped inform the way that you think about and rising today and your own client success? Well, probably the Adam and Eve experience was more profound than the YNR one. YNR was really just an amazing primer to the business, full stop. It was just a really good kind of all-round agency they had at the time, just one Ford kind of throughout Europe and stuff. So it was a couldn't have been a more sort of quick 360 to every side of how the business worked. Adam and Eve DDB, as it was then BMP DDB, was really like the University of Advertising. So it's where uh, planning, strategic planning was invented. 
so that was really where I honed my, the craft of developing, I guess, strategically and effective creative advertising in full because they took the, they took the craft of it really seriously on the creative side. They also took the strategic side of it as seriously. And I think the financial times described them at the time, and it's still true of the, the company today as um, something, I think it was uh, brand architects, not bricklayers. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that's a place you had uh, Bishopsbridge road at number 12, go up through the revolving doors and you're walking into, um, you know, 30, 40 years of advertising effectiveness at its most creative. So you could really deep dive on how brand strategy work. You can deep dive on uh, typography, pretty much every aspect that was involved in the craft of making long-term brand building um, creative campaigns is contained within that building, including, in fact, that you know, still today they have Les Binet and a lot of the famous names around econometrics and how it gets measured are all in that building and develop their thinking from that building. So it's a it's sort of... Um, I'd say it's probably the closest you've got to a university of advertising. And that's what I went there for. Again, I, I tried pretty hard to get in. Um, and so once there got really embedded there, I was there for over seven years, just working on absolutely everything I could get my hands on, lifting briefs out of bins, whatever it took really to just, and I kind of absorbed, I was like a sponge in there, absorbed absolutely everything I could. Um, so it was an incredible uh, training ground there. You set up and rising in 2010, which I think was actually 18 feet and rising, and then it rebranded to and rising a little bit later. You can um, uh, talk a little bit about that if you like. The business has changed a little bit since then, but when you started, what problem were you trying to solve in the early days? What what gap had you seen in the market in the way that current ad agencies weren't filling or weren't providing to their clients that made you think that and rising would be a good business to set up at the time? What I was finding was that at BMP uh, DDB or Adam and Eve DDB now as it is, um, the types of campaigns were maturing and the types of brands in those companies was maturing. And the um, I was interested in, you know, what, what kind of work could happen in those really early stage companies that are very punk, a little bit anti-advertising, usually experimenting with lots, you know, new different styles um, and, and types of advertising. And that's there seemed to be a lot of innovation happening in the States at that time around those companies. Uh, Droga had just been born and Crispin Porter and companies like that, but not so much here in London, um, despite having quite a big history here in London of companies like that, whether you go all the way back to BMP itself, which was ultimately acquired by DDB or CDP or in the 2000s, HHCL, and then you have Mother, and then you have Fallon, Wyden and Kennedy that came over from the States. Um, and I was at Fallon at the time and, you know, it was you know, by far and away the most creatively recognized company in the world, I think, at that moment. But it didn't strike me that there were any new agencies coming through to fill the next generation. Ballon was coming up to 10 years old. Mother was coming over 10 years old. And they were starting to get into bigger and bigger companies. And I was interested in, you know, kind of where those companies were right at the beginning. Small boutique, a bit crazy, unhinged, a bit pirate. And working with brands like that and kind of growing them, you know, into the establishment, if you like. And that's how the industry typically reinvents itself. It uh, has these, you know, these breakaway, these renegade breakaways that latch on to some brands. They do things completely differently and, and then eventually they become acquired and so on and so forth. And it looked like that cycle wasn't really replenishing itself. And so it's almost like we've been having done all of these great agencies. It was a bit like, where do you go? 
to, to restart that cycle. So uh, myself and two others from Fallon said, well, why don't we see if we can create you know, almost the next Fallon you know, or the next mother? And that was really the, that was the gap that we saw uh, at the time. So before we go and speak about your business in a bit more detail, because I'm absolutely fascinated to hear how it's changed in recent months and years, but let's set the scene for everyone because we know that the advertising industry has been sort of in decline for the last few years now, um, we, as programmatic as has come into it, as Facebook and, and Google have started dominating ad revenues globally. Um, it was a two trillion pound industry, but with more and more budgets, as we said, going to the, the biggest technology companies in the world. Give us an idea of what factors have contributed to the shrinking of the advertising industry and what are the implications then for the way that the industry looks today and the main players in the in the market? Yeah. Just give us an sort of a potted history or an idea of kind of where we are today. Digital and anything with zeros and ones in it is the, is the headline of it. And that, will, you know, it continues to be the case. Um, and I, I think that it's the scale of it that's difficult for the advertising business to get its head around because by, it by and large operates within a bubble you know, with its own points of reference, it's got its own award system, all this kind of stuff. And it, it it's quite a small industry in many ways. But if you look at the site, you know, the compound, they would take the market cap of the large comms groups and they're a fraction of the size of Google and Facebook. And so that really the over between 27, 8, 2010, through the last decade, that's what you're seeing growing enormously. And so what you've got is a huge movement of money from, let's call it top of the funnel or traditional advertising uh, mass marketing and into in towards uh you know mid and lower funnel when you're researching products online and then those platforms in of themselves become so big and the audiences become so big that they can do top of the funnel as well and you have a you have a kind of flip versus say you know here in the uk we are say 55 million people and we have the bbc which means you have a strong itv so you want to market your product to an island of 55 million people you can use itv to get there what you then have instead is a business that might be operating globally and it's finding its audience wherever that audience is and it's shipping the product to them or it's providing that service digitally through tech or otherwise. And those digital platforms can open up the world to you in a way that you don't have to market anymore to that island through a traditional mass market broadcast. And you have that happening on a huge scale. And then you have traditional clients as well doing the same thing. They feel like, they should move money into into the into screens that eyeballs again that initially would have been to some extent lower cost as well. So um, somewhere between price, huge growing audience, um, you know, more movement of energy, marketing energy into mid and let's say bottom funnel around the the buying and the shopping experience itself is really the big is the big one. Now in the UK, you have some defense against that because we've still got a lot of consumers in one place that are relatively influenced by TV and that's why you'll get a lot of stats around the effectiveness of TV and things like that. Although I think last year in particular has had a, you know, has, has sort of accelerated the, to some extent, the pressure on, on that channel. And you have advertising attaching itself to retail and the Christmas period. So we're sort of creating its own Super Bowl around that. And that's where the, that's masked, I think, um, what in the background has been a, a really big shift away from mass marketing into and into what much more personalized community-based marketing at scale using digital platforms, specifically Google and, uh, Google and Facebook. You then have another thing, which I think compounds it, 
and which is really bitten last year, which is the arrival of ad-free, you know, ad-free content mm. of very, very high quality, specifically Netflix. And then last year you have Amazon Prime, now you've got Apple and you've got Disney Plus and this subscription-based model that's ad-free. So sort of our content eyeballs are now going into the ad-free streaming zone and then our shopping eyeballs are through our phones primarily um, online. And it's kind of left the traditional mass marketing tools of let's call it TV and then outdoor. You have no outdoor last year because nobody's outside <laughs> and you've got a very interesting, you know, you kind of, it's almost like it's, it's the one in the middle that's getting left behind a little bit, but that was happening anyway. If you like, you know, slowly, but surely across a 10 year period between, uh, sort of, let's say 2008 and nine, that's when Shopify also gets born, gets born alongside Facebook ads. So mm. there's a huge access to people being able to, um, build e-commerce, shops themselves and then advertise them using Facebook. And so you have a lot of venture capital going into um, direct to consumer brands over the last 10 years as well and so on and so on. So yeah, that's, that's been the, that's the major shift. And it's the same going forward. If you've, if you're attached to some form of uh, digital marketing trend line going forward, you're uh, that, that game's ever changing. Apple's about to, you know, make Facebook private on its platforms, dividing the world into Android and Apple users. And that game now will need to be mastered by, digital marketing experts. So that game's constantly updating itself. So if you're somewhere in the space of managing that game, that all the way through to proper data and insight collection of which marketing services might be kind of a feature, you add it on on the back of a fairly heavyweight piece of consulting or otherwise, that's really where everything's going. Mm. And future faith in, let's say, the business of brand advertising to lead the charge for a business kind of is no more really that's that's going to be a tool in your box it's not going to be the tool that's right at the center of the brand driving everything that's going forward which as little as 15 years ago it pretty much was you know people in ad agencies were sitting on the boards of the big brand companies and they you know they they don't any longer it will be someone with e-commerce experience or digital experience and so on and so forth so yeah that's that's what's going on <laughs> or been going on so in, in that context, what is the role of the traditional ad agency uh, or media agency? I mean, we're seeing a lot more of these media owners themselves becoming agencies or at least creating a creative arm off the back of what they do and sort of, you know, traditional agencies were the middlemen and they're sort of being disrupted now by brands going directly to the media owners themselves and sort of accessing all of these micro audiences. What is the role of the traditional agency in this new environment? What what does a modern agency look like? Well, I mean, don't forget that a huge chunk of that traditional advertising market, and it's still got lots and lots of cash in it. I mean, you cited a trillion. I've, I've got, for some reason, I've got 21 billion in my head. Of, like, that might be the TV market or something like that. Mm. So still, a, there's still lots and lots of cash in it. It throws off cash into agencies, and they're really based around... Uh, the traditional mega brands, if you will, particularly consumer packaged goods, um, who distribute through the traditional um, supermarket retailer. So that's all still very, very, very big business compared to when you look at e the size of e-commerce and things like that. And that's where you get a lot of, I don't know, you, you, you get a bit, you get quite a lot of backlash around digital marketing and things like that. And they go, well, you know, it's a lot of rubbish because a traditional brand might be doing 400, 500 million in sales through the big five supermarkets and it's spending 5% of that budget on its ad agency and 
um, another 5% even on its media agency. And so to some extent for those brands, the world looks very similar to how it did 10 or 15 years ago. You know, it's eroded a little bit every year. Um, and those companies and the agencies and the media companies are brilliant at just getting more out of that, squeezing more juice out of that lemon, if you like, you know, constantly optimizing it, playing the game better, you know, perhaps, you know, using data and things to um, make the media money go further, uh, you know, creativity to cut through more, you know, build slightly longer term value into it. So that game's still being played and it's still got a fair bit of cash attached to it. It's really the things outside of that that, that are you know, much more fragmented, playing their own games, much more, you know, much more disruptive. Um, but they're still relatively, on an individual base, they're still relatively small in size. So the jobs of those traditional big players really is still to do that job. It's to get great value out of media through a level of bulk buying, through a level of frontline expertise and deep knowledge of effectiveness of the past, um, adding in uh, creative layers and building brands properly, etc. It's just that it's it's consolidating bit by bit kind of every year smaller and smaller so there's there's still that role to be done it's just you don't need as many players doing it if you like and the typically what will happen in markets like this is that you know you get a kind of separation between the you know a few really good agencies that will continue to do that really well i think what's i think what's interesting is what happens to the rest um and you're seeing a mixture of things happening you know you, you, there's mass redundancies which is creating a lot of splinter and satellite agencies working for one or two clients themselves or working with an old contact. And that's the way that that client will optimize their spend. Um, there's an agency in the States whose name I forget pretty new. It's just taken the Domino's account out of Crispin Porter, for example, you know, that kind of thing where they'll move with their mates. Hmm. Um, there's consolidation into the data agency or the below the line agency or the digital agency, which makes a lot of sense because these groups are broadly valued in old growth world fundamentals like profit and growth and and so detaching them a little bit and saying hang on a minute we've got a bunch of data and tech consulting going on in these groups actually and we should be valued according to how those companies are performing not how the ad agency is so you, you know that's why you might fold gray in you know behind akqa for example um you know you put, put your ad agency in, in behind the, the more the more tech oriented or data oriented um, brand or capability. So that, do you see what I mean? So it's sort of what happens to the rest and a variety of things will happen from people just losing their jobs and, and going freelance or contracting or stepping out of the industry and going working for scale ups themselves <clears throat> in the agencies, consolidation into other agencies within the group. That's what has to happen. And I think we're, we're you know, my, my belly tells me we're a little way off that being completed yet. And that last year will have put wheels in motion for a fair a fair bit of it to come over the next year, eighteen months or so. So I think a world where six groups becomes three, mm. whether they act, whether it's still six groups or not. But the feeling of you know, if you look at the say the recovery of the the share price of some of these companies, it's even at the moment you know with vaccine announced, it's still twenty twenty five percent down. Say, mm. so that's what you're expecting. You're anywhere between 20-30% shrinkage in those comms groups. So. Really interesting. Let's talk a little bit about the change that you made in, in 2018 because the context is really, is really fascinating and thanks for setting the scene. You shifted your focus to focusing on, on scale-ups 
um, sort of early part of 2018. So you're no longer just a creative ad agency. Uh, you invest in early stage businesses, direct to consumer brands specifically, and help them with their creative development. I've not really come across another agency with a similar model to it. How does it work? Explain for the listener that isn't familiar what the model looks like. Yeah, so it's not an entirely new model. It's There are some companies in the States that over the last 10 years uh, worked like this, but essentially it's a, it's called, we call it creative capital and it's an investment of creative expertise, strategic brand thinking, other knowledge uh, and effort, which goes in a sweat equity into an early stage company um, instead of them having to go and raise money and then spend that money on an agency, for example, as, a, as an alternate to that. So for a scale up, what they get is they get to bake some of that, let's say, bigger brand thinking knowledge around which media channels will scale them fastest, depending on what they're doing, and then marrying the media investment model with the brand and their audiences and so on, and really putting the afterburners on their growth uh, at a much earlier stage, at a time when they can, you know, it's something that they can afford. It's relatively equity efficient versus having to go and raise that kind of capital with a VC where you would you would give away a lot more equity. But actually, more often than not, we're going in alongside or as part of a seed round of other investment as well. So it's kind of interesting. It's not, it is an alternative because in some ways it means you can bring all of that brand thinking in much earlier mm. uh, and ben- therefore benefit from it much earlier, uh, particularly in a lot of categories where there's a, a race on to you know, take pole position or by the time a mattress company has got to market, there are 10, 16, 15 others, and you're now in a very traditional expensive marketing battle. You know, you can get there, you can go a bit earlier in the cycle, um, correct anything. Sometimes, you know, brand will get going, it'll, it'll gain an incredible community, the product's great, the experience is great, but the brand is, is left a bit weary and uh, then you have to then to almost invest a lot more money to either correct it or worst case rebrand it or even just to kind of put some um to get some value into it so the earlier you the earlier you do that's almost like the the more you grow the brand value sort of like brand as a brand as an asset on the balance sheet you know that you're 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 paying value into it right from the very the very get-go versus it being a kind of phase two afterthought so that's that's really how it works and because it's invested in as expertise and not cash they you know will be able to relinquish you know less share at that point and but more importantly be able to afford access to a team and it brings the two teams together because you're kind of going in mm. sh- you know your shoulder to shoulder um you know we don't see a return unless those those brands are really fit for market and so we're yeah we go in alongside each other which i think is sort of what every client agency strives to do but sure. it's very difficult to do and ultimately you're being those services are being bought in even if they're being bought in on a relationship retainer or something ultimately there's still a and the way that marketing, like in the end, an ad agency will need a certain type of creative work to market itself. And that won't necessarily form fit to what the client is and so on and so on and so on. So I think probably what we're seeing more than anything is it's the bringing together of the team, you know, those sort of it's those brains and the founders talent and the product kind of all working uh, as part of one gang is, is as much the accelerant in there as the official expertise or marketing expertise that's being brought to the table alongside, you know, it has to be first and foremost a really exciting, different um, value-adding product or service, you know. And and that's almost 
hearkening back to the Don Draper sort of Madison Avenue era of advertising, whereby the brand and the agency was sort of hand in hand going to market, creating products together, going to market together and having a share in the spoils equally. I feel as though we've sort of gone away from that in the last sort of, you know, 30, 40 years or so. So that's that's a really interesting model. So when you're looking at an, an, an investment opportunity or a brand or an early stage scale up that has potential, what are you looking for in the proposition, in the founder, in the market opportunity? Like mm. what, what are you using to evaluate whether or not this is a good fit for you? So this is a really good point. It's a good fit for you. Um, and I think that's an important distinction because as effectively investors, to some extent, you know, we, we need to know something about what they're doing or understand something about what they're doing to be able to help. And so it isn't just looking for things that are in high growth categories. It's got to cross over with things that we've got some level of domain expertise in, for example. So there's, a, there's some sort of fun, fundamental basic things like, yes, we think we know how to help this situation is, uh, which might be different from when you're just plowing cash in and you can actually it's over to the founders and over to the founder team then to deploy that cash to go and work it out. You know, we're bringing um, expertise to the table. So it's like, can what we do actually make a difference? So is it building community? You know, can it, does it have a, a, a kind of distinct, the potential for a distinctive emotional or relationship frequency that you can build community around? Is it digitally driven? Meaning like, is it, is it uh, distributed and sold primarily direct or as part of a hybrid omni-channel um so there's some like uh, real basic framework things like that and then the questions we're asking are is this something that brand can make a big difference to you know which typically in consumer brands or consumer products or consumer tech uh, and and beyond actually you know brand is all pervasive um can can going in earlier make a big difference and um, can what we know about how media models work and how to invest in marketing make a difference. So we're looking for things where that kind of thinking can really um, put a significant amount of change into the outcomes for those ventures concerned. And there are an awful lot of them. You know, there are an awful, there's an awful lot of cash available. You know, it's a period of incredible innovation and there's more um, venture capital available than there are good ideas to put it in. Mm. And then we are limited on brilliant founders. We're limited on brilliant product. And then those founders are pretty limited on access to brand and marketing skills to, to scale them really quick. So you put those things together and we're looking for those sorts of conditions, basically. What have you learned about what the most successful founders do or behave or think about in the early stage that is a precondition to their success? What do their teams look like? How do they build their structure their organizations what, what have you noticed about what the most successful scale-up brands do or look like in the early days um that is different to the less successful ones yeah there's a, f- a few different things and sometimes you you get a mix there are some people that are you know there's a, a kind of saying entrepreneurs are born not made and there are people that are just born to to put in, you know ingredients together whether they know a lot, an awful lot about them or not and bring people together to achieve something. Um, and that's definitely one kind of innate skill that we're looking at is this uh, kind of like almost like a magician. Do they know how to put different ingredients in a hat and kind of magic things that wouldn't previously have been there? And then people just have that, that natural enchantment 
to attract people and things and to spot stuff and, and kind of enough common sense maybe and, and, and um, you know, real world common sense and intelligence to spot something at one and know how to sell it for two. It just it's a, a kind of magic about them like that. Other, other than say, learn about, um, you know, a discipline and, and practice it and things like that. They just have an ability to glue things together. Mm. Um, there's another part of it, which is a, a level of domain expertise or passion you know, like like we all have, you know, there'll be a, from a young age, maybe there'll be something, a particular type of product or a particular type of craft um, that captures their imagination. It might be food, it might be um, technology, it might be uh, nutrition, beauty, you know, and, then, and there's just something in there that they, you know, go into either that industry for a little bit or they gem up on it or they surround themselves in people that know a lot about it. And it's kind of wired into their own identity and and draws very much on their own um, experiences with those types of products and categories. Uh, and that's another area of it. And then I think really the last thing is, um, is almost an ability to let other forces and other ideas almost let the whole thing develop. So it's, it's a capacity to leave some space and some oxygen, either new teammates to come in or for people like ourselves to come in. And what we see a lot of is, you know, particularly in more of the side hustle things is that passion kind of overspills into um, not wanting to let go of certain things, not wanting to take things out of certain niches. Because a lot of times, you know, a, 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 um, a product or service can gain a, a niche following and it can be a good business. And it doesn't, you know, and actually it can stay right there and grow very, very slowly. That, that is, you know, you had... Um, you know, Hyatt jeans on. It's just an amazing business, mm. like front to back. And it, it's in no hurry to grow. It's in a, it's in a you know, if it, if it is in any kind of a hurry, it's in a hurry to do things properly. Sure. And in those instances, in a way, um, sometimes you can be in the way of your own potential. Um, and so in a way, a certain open-mindedness or an openness to, to certain ideas, because in most cases, it's not, you know, the Hyatt jeans, sorry, those guys are really experienced and they've got a really specific vision. In most other cases, you'll need capital, you'll need, to grow, to be able to, to fulfill, you know, the idea. And sometimes a little bit of not wanting to risk, not wanting to speculate, not wanting to let other sort of oxygen in actually is the limiting factor. So, so some level, and that's really where the creative part comes in. So what, you know, you asked earlier, what a advertising agency is good at, what you learn in a creative environment of any kind, whether it's an ad agency or you're in film development or music development or any creative process, innovation, is allowing it's sort of knowing you're completely right, whilst also accepting you could be completely wrong. It's this sort of like <laughs> quantum state of um, knowingness and unknowingness all at the same time, and things can gain real momentum when you've got that over. I think I've got it all, or um, you know, I'm a little worried to step out of my comfort zone because we see we see plenty of um, examples where something's really great and with a bit of fuel could really go all the way, but there's a real level of nervousness about um, going past those early stage customers and things like that. And, and, and vice versa, you know, the, if a product's not ready and it hasn't built a level of market traction or has, has a sense of what it is yet, you can pour a lot of fuel on it not being quite ready. So yeah, it's that just finding them as they come, we you know, sort of call it as they come into market fit, that's where we're most interested in. It's just where a ton of experience around scaling brands you can spot those that have a great product but not necessarily let's say a great brand or one where they mm. they even have a great brand but it could use more um 
fuel. It could use more eyeballs. It could it could use reaching different kinds of audiences. There isn't enough stretch in the brand. Because don't forget that where a, a, the first product of a of a company or the first service it offers may not be its last. That may be one of a suite of things that it eventually opens up. And so putting enough stretch into that core brand architecture to starting in a really specific place, serving a really specific audience um, in a brilliant way is kind of very much the the seed. You know? And then from there, that expertise can then be, oh, well, if you're good at that, we might trust you to be good at some other things. Sure. Um, and that's what we're, those, that's the way our brain works. And, you know, after you know, 20 years, in, in my case, of just being around that, um, and 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 in making making those investment bets, you know. So what media agencies do, what advertising agencies have great skills in, is sort of placing bets that in the past that weren't necessarily a, you weren't necessarily able to speculate on in units of fifty pounds and a hundred pounds, and let's see where it goes. And a lot of those funnel things you can get really trapped in the last minute click measurements and some of those things. You're not speculating cash, and I can't, I can't quite see where it's returning, but I know it does. Because I, I I have an instinctive feel for how this is going to work, and I've been in an, in enough scenarios to know that over an eighteen month period, for example, that these things really start to make a difference. And you know, pre digital tracking, and we're about to enter a world where digital tracking is going to be pretty muted again. So it's going to be very interesting. You know, that's what the BMP DDBs of this world kind of trained you in was: here's how best we can measure it. Here's how we, you know, here's how something's worked over five years. Here's how something's worked over 10 years. You know, we would embed, take something like a Marmite, which is an irrelevant product, and embed, you love it or hate it in it, and and unlock 20 years of brand equity, value, sales, price defense, um, media efficiency, et cetera, et cetera. So you, you're applying that same ability to speculate. It's, just, it's the same thing venture capital does. It speculates on the idea or the size of the problem you're solving. And we're speculating on the brand, which is... So a near identical set of skills to when you uh, speculate on a campaign, um, you know, for a, for a bigger corporate brand where everything isn't as measurable, you know. I've got a million questions about <laughs> this because I think the model is absolutely fascinating. Um, the, I guess the first question that I've got, or sorry, the third or fourth question that I've got is what, what, how do you, how do the economics work? So is it similar to traditional VCs where they lose a bunch of money on 90% of what they invest in and sort of, you know, the 10% that do make it, make it big, and then they recoup all their losses and sort of make it worth their while. How do you think about the economics? How is that side structured? It's a brilliant question. And we're still, it's a work in progress. So we still have what we call the studios business, which is the, uh, if you like, the communications agency, advertising agency, as it was, and you can buy, you can still buy that service, which you know, covers a, is, is a contribution to a lot of the overhead that's required then to have the creative capital model in place. So some scaling brands just want to do that. There's no role for an, an equity exchange. And that's really where we began in 2018. The, the sort of first five years, we were a mixture of corporate and scale-ups and we saw real, you know, our punk anti-advertising energy, if you like, was making a much bigger difference on scale-ups than it was to the to the corporate brands, which by and large, you know, they were John Lewisizing. They were becoming more traditional, more, much more retail focused, much more around Christmas. We were interested in these other models. So when you're at later stage, Series B, somewhere around there where you have a marketing budget, you've perhaps got a marketing team in place, you know, we can be shopped like that. And that's where 18 through, uh, you know, 19, middle of 19 takes us. So that's one part of the business model that still remains. 
And then, yes, the other part of it then works exactly as you say. You know, we need to, you need to pick winners. And one of the skills we have to develop or have to be confident in is our ability to spot brand winners because that's what it's going to be. It's not just going to be, can you creatively add magic to them? You know, arguably, actually, there's lots of ways to do that to some extent. Um, it's can you spot the ones you can make a big difference to that can go all the way. And again, that's really where the, you're redeploying the skills that are used in a creative development process and you're using them to make informed speculation um, such that you do have some winners in there. I mean, I don't think it's going to be an entirely zero-sum game because we're not necessarily always investing in, let's say, blitz-scaled ventures. So things that are like, right, winner takes everything or most and the rest don't get anywhere like say an Uber or an Airbnb or, you know, that might be part of it that we, we hope that's a chunk of it. And um, the other part of it is, will be a bit mixed. You know, some will do quite well, but maybe not, you know, maybe not hit the goal. And those things are often acquired by corporates um, because they like the brand and they can put that brand onto their rails and they can expand it using their distribution muscles. So a couple of the ventures we've been around are like Seedlip. Uh, we're currently working really closely with Neo, which is, world-class cocktail sent to your house mm. and those things are rivaled very heavily by Diageo who will you know they'll you know seed lip was acquired by Diageo around this time last year and they'll go great we've got it you guys have got proof of concept now no problem guess what we've got distribution <laughs> we've got sales mm. muscle we've we you can run but what we don't necessarily have is as good as skills developing and originating the brands and we don't really want to invest in them we'll wait till one of you guys gets a level of market fit and then we'll come in so those, you know, smaller deals, they're still really, really interesting financially. And they're, you know, especially if there's a scale component, the other side, obviously something like a, when a corporate comes in and puts its distribution muscle behind something like that, they go, they get really big. Um, and so we've got quite a few in the area of food and drink that work a little bit that way. We're all acting almost like the innovation department for a future corporate acquisition, for example, because their innovation departments aren't as robust or they don't have the inclination to do it that way, but specifically in direct consumers. So some of it will work a bit like that. And then some, yeah, unfortunately won't go the distance and no, no matter what we do with them, mm. there's an element of market forces and luck and team dynamic, you know, who knows what, you know, and so we're sort of, we're, we're ready for that. Yeah. But also bear in mind that some of it is, you know, wherever we can, there's a, there's a hybrid element to it. So we, a bit like a uh, same as a venture capital fund. There's like a fee that's there for the management of the fund that covers the you know basic salaries and and things that are needed to just provide the service. And in a way, the equity is the is really the overinvestment on our part, and it's the it's the performance upside for the value baked in early. Bench Press 2021 is now open. It is the largest survey of independent agency owners in the UK, and it's your chance to benchmark yourself against your peers. You'll receive a copy of the full benchmark results as a thank you for taking part. By taking part, you'll be able to compare yourself against your peers in several key areas, including hourly rates and profitability and sales performance. You'll also discover what the top performers do differently, insights that will have the power to transform your agency. The link to complete the survey is in the description. So I'm really interested to know about the skill sets that you have brought into your team in order to make this transition. Very different skills and sort of muscles needed to run a traditional ad agency model. How do you think about or how have you thought about changing the skills of the team to spotting those opportunities and those more sort of ephemeral, softer skills that I guess aren't natural to the way that you have been 
brought up in the ad agency world. Talk, talk a little bit about how you've had to change the skills of the team. Yeah, I mean, I think in truth, the, the, the big change has been in, you know, myself and the, you know, and the immediate leadership around the company. Because remember, once a team is in the creative capital model, you know, we're then surrounding that brand like we would any other with the same creative development process, the same thought process. We're taking expertise from knowing a lot about scale-ups in the, where our focus has been. So we're deploying that expertise. But that's been building up over a number of years. So it looks the same. So at a certain point, actually, you could peek inside a virtual meeting room and it would look very similar, if not the same. I think the feeling is different. And I think the dynamic between the, the parties is very different. You know, the, the level of um, ability to bounce ideas back and forward, the energy behind um, wanting to go fast to take bigger risks. I think that feels very different than you would get in a traditional shopping and agency environment. But the skills being used are are very similar, you know, with save for you need to know a lot about how to make budgets go further. You know, and that's where, again, like having a foot in the large scale advertising industrial complex, you know, we know how to handle larger budgets. We know how to get the most out of a TV production, things like that. We, you know, we could go in and handle our own with even though the level of growth and things might be coming in it with a, you know, a much smaller investment level. And we're across the latest uh, growth hacks or media hacks, which is often about arbitrage, like where is cost effective to be at the moment? A lot of targeted eyeballs for a good return, how to develop a type of creative work that isn't necessarily always about storytelling. I think that within the discipline of creative development, the shift has really been from advertising to brand. So this is a great ad idea, or this is a great campaign idea to we're building a really great brand here. And here's sort of the brand idea, which has a lot more to do with design and distinctive uh, design world, to put it simply, the distinctive product experience world, advertising that feels like a sample of the product mm. or the product experience. Um, you know, because the ad business still judges itself very much on sort of storytelling ads which is not necessarily what a scale-up needs at all, actually, because then it, make, it makes it look more similar to some of the other categories. That's a big, you know, one of the fundamental mistakes a scale-up will make is it'll, arrive, you know, it'll land on an ad budget, go shop an agency, and suddenly its ads look just like, you know, it's the Swagger ad from the, with the 1980s soundtrack, or it's the Tearjerker ad uh, with the animation style. You know, so it, it, advertising has a number of formulas that it uses effectively within the realm of keeping established brands familiar mm. rather than establishing entirely new things, which, you know, can be a, very much around the design element um, and new product experience and things like that. So there is a creative adjustment around um, not just ad ideas, but kind of what's going to build the brand and what's going to make us recognized really quickly, whether we're in a digital format or whether we, but it can also cross over if we, you know, we are scaling through connected TV or something like that isn't going to be, it's going to be something really nice to sit alongside, you know, ads with bigger budgets that are taking a storytelling format. So there's a little, there is a creative adjustment in there, but not one that you wouldn't make by just being around these kind of brands. Mm. So there's kind of a little bit more creative direction from our part to go, how is this going to work in the context of building brand value long-term? But I think the, the, the real shift is in the outlook of the agency and, and unhooking the marketing of the agency from one that's based on the advertising model which is largely through press relations 
and then the intermediaries say is the is the you know the traditional very very traditional way of doing it is the which is you know why it's interesting podcasts like these that are springing up that are that are live out a little bit outside of that are growing up in a different way themselves but to, you know typically the two or three titles that dominate that industry um, dominating those winning the awards in those um, seeking favor with those and then being spotted by the intermediaries it's yeah, I think that, you know, at a certain point, that was about 90% of how we attracted clients. So how you rewire that actually has been the big job. And that's been a job for me and Adrian Little, who's another partner here, and, and Rob Ward, is to rethink ourselves as a venture capital company first and a creative agency second. And to, it, it's been as simple as studying venture capital firms and drawing on the bits that look a bit like what you do. and. Mm-hmm. Uh, and building networks out within that those communities and and the titles that those that are read by those and talking about the creative capital model and letting people know what it is through channels where though you know you'll you'll have investors you'll have founders doing their you know where they go to find out who they sh- should be talking to around their raises um that you know their fundraising and we're still working on that you know we'd we'd love to have a couple of our own owned channels whether that's a startup school but you know things like that feel very ambitious for us at the moment we're still in the early days of it but that kind of thing where we're able to attract the best deals and attract the best founders that's is the rewire that we're going through you know right now and that's really a job it starts with the it really starts with me which has not been easy for me as a as an individual because my whole background is it is in advertising Mm. and it's where actually all of my you know all of my cv credentials are there you know, if you, in the ad community, I've got a CV as long as my arm. In this community, you know, we're unknown; it's unproven. That's also what's exciting because the, you know, the the founding of the of Eighteen Feet and Rising, those first few years where you get to be the the new disruptors, are definitely by far the most fun years. And yeah. as soon as we achieved any level of growth and scale, we were then just another ad agency. It's very difficult to compete. Yeah. Um, so it's really fun going into a, a whole new space and learning a whole new thing, but. You know, you have to kind of fire yourself. Um, and that's how I think of it. And, you know, sometimes I find myself drifting back to, oh, I wonder what the ad community will think of this piece of work that we're doing. Mm. And that's not how to think of it at all. It's like, what kind of, what value are we putting into an asset if it was to be valued tomorrow? Would an investor look at brand and go, well, you guys have built a distinct community here. I can see metrics around, you know, you look at, um, let's just take an example. Like you look at um, Airbnb's S1 mm. when it files to IPO and it, you know, in there is a chunk of its traffic comes directly and it doesn't go via the Facebook, Google complex. That's because it's built an amazing brand as a verb, as a type of, you know, as an emotional frequency called starts off you living on my couch has a very different emotional feeling to going to a hotel, but now it can sell hotels with that same. So there's a lot of, you know, things that they did very innately in the way that they grew that now means that, you know, they can acquire 90% of customers straight into Airbnb which means they have a hell of a future ahead of them. Mm. That's what I'm thinking about is if they were to go to S1 tomorrow, is that what we would have achieved for them? Some, a name, some distinctive, uh, a way of acquiring customers that's a unique destination to them, communities that love them, repeat purchase, ability to uh, move to recurring revenue models or subscription models. You know, it's difficult to put it in brand love terms. I think people still find those metrics fairly flaky. They like to see the how it relates directly to the business. But yes, at some level there will be a, and this is a highly attractive brand that's difficult to replicate in the way that it does things. 
which of course does have a value and it drives valuations up. So have to keep kind of coming, kind of coming back there. So yeah, on, on certain Mondays, you've got to fire yourself and come back as a, come back as somebody else. That's it. What have you learned? I'm really interested to know what have you learned most about specifically the business that you're in right now? What have you learned about, I guess, the toughest growth areas for yourself? Like what areas did you feel were the most difficult to learn? What blind spot did you have initially early on? How have you grown over this period of time? I'm really interested to understand your own sort of growth journey. Probably the first thing is just, is that thing of thinking 10 years out and attaching your strategy to that. Because I think the, in a way, what 18 Feet and Rising did was attach itself to the way things had happened in the previous 10 years. What you'll find in any market is, you know, you go 10 years forward and that, what, what might happen in 10 years won't make much sense today. But you get this innovate, you know, you get this kind of innovator's dilemma where you can't let go of how a market works today in order to get to tomorrow. But it's pretty much um, the case that those that do attach themselves to those future trend lines will over the period of 10 years get, you know, sort of edged towards that and be part of a wave being in behind them. Whereas what happens if you are kind of hanging on to the business model, if you like, as you will, it's there's still maybe a lot of good business in it, but it will steadily decline on you and you'll find it ever tougher. And that's really what, what 18 Feet and Rising happened was that, was that the corporate advertising world was holding less and less value for it and the scale-up world was holding more and more. And, you know, there was probably a year of confusion around that. Uh, and it was like we weren't far enough into how direct-to-consumer was working and how Facebook and Google were working and Instagram and these sorts. We weren't far enough into that technology being pervasive enough to see where it could go, but nor had the and, and nor had the fees and what have you around corporate advertising quite declined enough yet for us. And you're kind of a bit okay. You're a bit stuck. So I think you know, with the um, you know, looking back, I think I would have attached ourselves. Our, our, our ten-year trend line beginning was let's be a really great indie creative ad agency, the ad agency, creative agency of the record of record for that decade. And in a funny way, we were attached to a trend line that was going to, de- you know, going to decline. Mm. And now it's the opposite. It's there is a an idea around getting scale ups the brand help they need much much earlier and sharing in the equity upside. And I suspect in ten years time, I won't be the only one that's done it. And I, you know, uh, we won't be the only ones that will be benefiting from it. Even though right now, a lot of people look at it and go, I don't understand that. It doesn't make, <laughs> it doesn't make a lot of sense. So yeah. there is that. I think that's one thing is you know. Where is it going? And if you're starting a business, attach yourselves to, to that trend line. If you're going to go, if you want to maintain a status quo on something, and I think there are lots of romantic reasons to do that, and there will be a market in it, you know, then really be content with being very specialist um, and high margin. Hmm. And you know, it's small and high margin. It can also be wonderful. It's kind of what the Hyatt Jeans thing is. Hmm. You know, be, be really boutique and, and, and be proud of, you know, really, really go for that. But we were, we weren't that. We had scaled as a company, and, and I personally have a level of interest in scale um, and scaling brands. So I think that's sort of one sort of business strategy thing, if you like, that I would have a, have a think about. Um, I think um, you know, you will, you will come out the gates quickly, and then there's a period afterwards where it slows, and that's okay. Um, I think that's probably just one other one other simple one. And then I think the, the 
the shift emotionally uh, is from, I don't know if this is going to make much sense, from being utterly scared but fearless. <laughs> Love it. Um, um, not being scared at all but sort of fearful. Yeah. And it's, I don't know if this is going to work, but I'm going to jump off. Mm. Um, and I, you know, I've, it's like, Wah! I've just, I, I, <laughs> build it on the I, way I'm down. Off, yeah. Well, you don't even know if you're going to, there's just a chance you just might yeah. come straight. So and oh, that, whereas, whereas you kind of know that's not going to happen this time. You know, if you jump okay. off, there's going to be all sorts of ways and means. Sure. So in a way it's a little bit more like fearful that you actually are just going to not be, you know, not build it well on the way down well enough. It's a different reflect, different uh, way to judge yourself. Mm. Um, in the first ways, it's like the act of doing it alone. You can give yourself an awful lot of credit for just jumping, just having the guts to go for it is, um, sets you apart. Uh, whereas I think, you know, the, in a way, sort of the second time around, it's like, no, we have to be able to build some real customer value here. You're not going to gain points just by, I'm not going to gain, you know, any further self-improvement points just by the act of doing it because that's already been done and that's the it's sort of just sort of means that's scary in a different way it's like can we actually be any good <laughs> mm. you know um mm. we got a lot of we got a lot of brownie points as a you know you get a lot of brownie points in an established industry for just starting one you get a lot of eyeballs you get a lot of unfair attention a lot of people are interested uh what's this that's new you know it's an industry that's very interested in new um so that comes to your aid. It is the sort of action has magic and power mm. thing. And there's other cases where it's no, just a really you know, good strategy and careful people management, good business management, having the right partners are found, you know, having it reattaching to good fundamentals basically is going to be the, um, you know, is going to be whether the creative capital model can go from, you know, a really interesting idea into something, uh, you know, a little bit more in industry changing. Um, mm. And it's kind of fun because it, it's, it's in a way, we're only measured by our own fund, if you see what I mean. It's like, like how, how, have, how are our investments doing? You're sort of playing your own. You're against yourself. It's the worst. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of, yeah. There's no industries like it's someone else's fund might, might do really well, but that's <coughs> a, di a diff completely different set of reasons. It's, it's much sure. more like a, a game of golf. It's you versus the, well, not that I play golf, by the way, I don't know why I said that. But the, <laughs> you know, it's much more... Um, uh, you versus your own capabilities to spot sure. have you than it is against let's just be really noisy and disruptive and anti this that and the other and we'll get a lot of unfair eyeballs and that's your reward you know so that's the there's a bit of a difference there I think. really interesting i i've really enjoyed this conversation i've learned so much about the, the creative capital industry and sort of advertising space uh where where ad spending is going and sort of yeah sort of how everything is changing so thank you very much for sharing your views Let, let's get into our favorite questions these are the questions that i ask all of my guests so okay. really excited to ask you some of these as well more who is the person behind the brand sort of questions um <laughs> they're really easy don't nothing to be worried about right. tell tell us about a time when you failed and what you learned from the experience oh gosh that is, can i tell you about a time i didn't fail that was <laughs> It does feel like that. Like does it? You really, we've got, everybody's got a kind of negativity bias. You, you tend to stare at constant sort of falling over right. um, all the time. I try, so I try and think of one that, um, um, I mean, I think, okay, so we, you know, we lost a lot of really big pitches at one point. You know, we had a, a shot at the title to go from, you know, to sort of double the size of the company. And I think it, it was part of that market feedback was why 
the scale-up side of it just just did so much better. We were realizing in those corporate arenas that we 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 couldn't win. And I think that was a so there was so the you know the, the failure, if you like, was not being able to win those things. Having put the agency at the time through an awful lot of effort, some of these pitches rolled three, four, five months, involved a lot wow. of travel. Um, cost and and a lot of don't worry we can get there you know it's, there was in in mm. these in these particular cases I'm thinking of we stood a very good chance of winning at certain points you know there were negotiations taking place about fees and things like that we were it was it was palpable how close we were and the whole company went on that journey to then you know not once twice probably two or three times the end of the right at the end of it would be like I'm really sorry it's not it's not going forward this time oh. again and so you were there was a bit of sort of not listening early enough to that market feedback. And I think it's what I, what I now know, this is five years on, is that the market forces around you are much bigger than your individual performance. Um, but at the time, it really, it really feels like it's just you, you know, something you guys are doing wrong. We've got the wrong offices. We've got the wrong lineup. We've got the wrong way of pitching. We've got the wrong... And I think there's a, there is that in there. But there is also a much bigger thing, which is you know, you, the market doesn't want your type this type of shape of solution. Um, and so I think, you know, uh, that those, you know, losing some pretty, wasting a lot of money and a lot of resources, uh, not moving the company forward is probably, um, you know, and I've been quixotic at times in the company. Let's, let, I've got this great idea. Let's do this, let's do this. And mm. we put a lot of resources or cash into it. And it's just firework shoots a meter up in the air and explodes, does nothing. <laughs> um, I, committed yeah. the, I committed the company to the development of human potential at one point. Wow. Which just sounded amazing to me. It, it does sound amazing. Um, but, you know, again, in market traction terms, it doesn't do anything and it, it got a lot of people confused. And so there's been a lot of that, uh, you know, when you're in charge of the thing, you can, and you're in charge of allocating capital, which I've now removed allocation of capital from my, <laughs> from my powers quite deliberately. Right. You, know, you can sort of impulse spend on your latest idea, your latest brainwave. And a lot of those things have kind of gone wrong. I think so. There's there's a bit of knowing your own limits and um, getting it wrong enough to to sort of step back and go, well, hang on a minute, this this isn't working. Let's let's try me not doing this. Um, and then I think the thing that you learn, the thing to bear in mind for anyone entrepreneurial otherwise is that there's a lot of things you can't control. Mm. Um, you know, there's a lot of things going on that are way beyond your um, your abilities. So mm. that's the kind of sort of being to yourself part doesn't make it any less frustrating by the way but yeah so we, is, that, is that a helpful answer I don't it's, know. A, it's yeah. a it's a great answer it's it's, it's a really great one uh, initially when you started speaking i thought you were gonna cop out and not give us some uh, you know a hard fought lesson but that was a really good one actually i think okay. there's a lot to take away in there you've got you got in the inside of some things that really went wrong we could go we could have a good couple of hours on that another time definitely that's another <laughs> podcast definitely <laughs> <That's> another- <laughs> <laughs> what books have been instrumental in the way that you think about startups business growth uh advertising media tell us about some of your favorite books i think don't read uh, don't worry too much about ad books everyone's got a model or a thing in there and i mean if you're new to the business or you you want to learn a bit about that business a kind of a flick through some of those is sort of fine but the the, the ones um the ones i've liked over the you know over my journey have come probably from outside those spaces where you um, sort of parallel universes. So interestingly, I, one of the books I really got into was for, uh, it's called The Hard Thing About Hard Things. Mm, ben Horowitz. Which is, yeah, which is, 
you know, Andresine Horowitz, which is actually a VC firm. So I, I could identify because the roller coaster of the first few chapters of that in particular, I can't really remember what happened to the rest of it, are very similar to the roller coaster mm. of starting anything. Um, and, you know, it really is like you, if you don't close that next deal, it's not, you know, it's everyone take your computers, pick up a chair if you want. Mm. <laughs> it's finished. Mm. You know, there's really that kind of, that's an ongoing feeling in any, that it, it, it can all evaporate um, before you. So it's, One of my favorite lines from that book, starting a business is like eating glass. <laughs> I, you know, I'm going to remember that forever. Yeah. Because it, at times it can feel like that. Yeah, I know. I can relate to that. So it was quite fun. It was quite. It was fun watching someone else in pain, <laughs> um, and um, and and then just the tr- obviously they had a huge bunch of success after it. So I, I think that one's a good. That's just a good. Mm. You know, when you're on holiday, make yourself feel better. But it's mm. tough. Um, what else? I I really liked. Uh, I actually got an awful. I, you know, a lot of. I got a lot out of the um, algebra of happiness by uh, Scott Galloway. Ah, okay. It's more known for the big four yeah. because he's the one that's talked the most, I think, in the ad business. They we live in fairly regularly into the ad business to point out just how big Google and Facebook is in comparison yeah. to them. And he has a background in our, our business, not directly, but he knows a lot about sure. it. And but he's written, you know, he's a lecturer at um, MIT NYU, or NYU, NYU in New York, Stern. somewhere. Yeah. And what he said, I think, that one of the premises of the book is that a lot of people knock on his door for life experience. And so he sort of packaged up all of the life experience into a book. And there was a, uh, my mum was not very well last year. And there's a really good um, particular chapter in there on caring for mm. uh, a loved one through end of life and things like that. So there was a couple of, there might just be a personal thing, but there's a pretty good protocol mm. in there and on that um, and on starting up and imbalancing your life in the early years. There's a lot of things that resonate resonated, um, which is either, um, signs of maturing shall we say uh, or just because it is it's got a lot of uh, you know un, unspoken things about yeah. uh, how, how the workplace works and sure. um, and, that, and how it all glues together okay. so yeah it was about, I really enjoyed that and then I uh, there's um, a lot of books on the history of Sesame Street which if you're interested in how something truly amazing is built it's a business book pretty much or is it a children's book no 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 it's a, it's a I think Joan Gantz and the team that created it pretty much all contribute to it and it's six years into the life of Sesame Street you'll have to order a copy online and it's just a fascinating story of how you bring together entertainment how you bring together a vision to to change the dynamic of a medium which I think is very relevant to what we're facing now we've built some we've built some platforms and they're amazing they do incredible harm as well and they were looking at the same thing then they were looking at TV and going it's kids watching cartoons of gunfights good for our kids mm. what if it could be used as a tool for education and they, and they didn't just then kind of noodle around with that problem they they, they went deep they, they went really <laughs> deep yeah, they brought in entertainers brought educators yeah. in there's uh i actually think um there's some illustrators from some kids books that were part of it and i've done some illustrations in the book um you know these illustrators from where the wild things are which if you've got kids you've read and he's got a few random doodles in there from these sessions that they were holding mm. And it's a really good deep dive in a bit like if you want to study like how NASA was born. You know, when they when you go on a topic, a big problem, and they want to solve it, they bring to, they brought to the researchers, sure. entertainment people, uh, people that are just incredibly passionate group. But I just think it's a good benchmark, you know, for how you bring a bunch of different people who and they can't see like TV producers don't know how to talk to 
education researchers and education researchers don't know how to talk to marketeers right. and they, but through the process of just all mushing together they you know you sesame street emerges and I, i'm pretty sure there's a, a big clue in that i just a huge sesame street yeah me too just, as a, as a it just stands up for a lot of things that I really like as a creative force. So I, I think there's a, I think there's a, a lot of clues in that in that particular book. It's got an old school cover. It's it's print. Yeah. So it I'm gets you out of your screen. Yeah. The history of Sesame Street, right? Mm. Added on my Amazon two thousand book <laughs> book list. Um, yeah. I'm never going to get to the end of that, but it keeps growing. Um, uh, last couple of questions and I'll let you go. What advice would you give to a young person or millennial who wants to start a career in the ad agency world? I think the ad business has actually got to ask, like, what, what is it? What is it offering? Um, because the, the, I think the, I think the uh, reality is, is I would say to, I would, I would ask that person to think very carefully whether they uh, liked the idea of the ad business enough to go into it, because the trend line of it is is in you know a, a level of steady decline and at this at this present moment there's only a few pockets within it that i think offer you know real creative development experience and there's only a handful of brands that i think you can gain some really unique skills around so i guess that, that i've sort of answered the question and so i would hone in on those brands that are doing some very interesting things and those uh agencies that are still that are still remaining agencies that are doing some really interesting things and basically get into one of those, um, knock on their doors, um, get, you know, get, getting into any company is, is more straightforward than, than people realize. People like to be flattered. LinkedIn will tell you who the senior people are, you know, same, same as you with me, you know, you, you, you look that person up, um, write to them personally, as personally as you can, might even be a letter, who knows, um, express real interest in them, ask them, see if you can get five minutes of coffee, 10 minutes, 20 minutes with them, um, you know, by and large, I, I like to think people do respond to those where they've been sought out more personally and they've taken the time to tap you on the shoulder. That goes not just for the ad, ad industry, but for anyone. And frankly, if they don't get back to you, they're not worth your time and find another company, at the, you know, and what have you. So that's how you do it. That's how you, you tap people personally on the shoulder. Look at the, LinkedIn's pretty good at revealing some senior people and then you can Google them. You can see, um, you can see uh, who's got other press articles written about them, what have you. Um, pro tip is if you can't afford campaign is to cut and paste the URL into outline.com and that'll give you a look at it for free. Thank you for um, that. Um, outline.com. Yeah, that gives you access under the radar to a lot of paid services that are behind paywalls and they should really make a bunch of it available really. So that Thank you for that. Save me a few thousand pounds. <laughs> what you want to get out of that industry, because I think it's... Um, from an advertising perspective, I think there's potentially ways you could learn about advertising in other other spaces. Uh, and I think the ad business has got to look at what is it, what's it offering beyond, let's say, traditional advertising training. And it might be access to all sorts of insight tools. So for example, a lot of companies have got some amazing insight tools and research tools. There's a lot of fascinating things going on in there. So is it crossing over with how those things work? You know, uh, is it actually brilliant, flexible working? Like, what is it that that can that we can do um, to make it? I think a more worthwhile um, experience for people because certainly, you know, it, it was a lot of running. It's a lot of doing. Um, you know, really 
base level kind of admin work to then work yourself up the ladder. And I think that I don't know if we for thirty percent more in pay, there's you can go to Facebook and Google and do sure. slightly more interesting analytics than that. Sure. Um, um, so that's probably what I'd say on that one. But there's there's a, there's five, six, seven, eight, nine, maybe even ten agencies that are still you can have a, a traditional. And actually, we we had a couple of people here that yeah, when they move from here, I'm always really offended. Like, why would you want to leave this model? <laughs> This is a brilliant model. Right. They go, no, no, I, I feel like I want to gain, you know, the, uh, what that creative ad experience has to offer. And there's still a few places that have got right. that. Interesting. Um, if they've got that, go for that, knock on the door. And if they haven't, then you're looking for a range of different companies that you can work out within the group. And, you know, there's still, you know, these are still credentials on your CV. And if you've, if you've jumped around a few of the different disciplines, then, you know, all the merrier. Mm. Really interesting. And my final question, Jonathan, what is it you know about advertising, media, and creating ad businesses today that you wish you knew at the beginning of your career? It's a, an amazing question. I think that uh, you can, uh, you, if we're talking about advertising, you know, your creative judgment is as valid as the experts. It's that, it, it is that. Ogilvy thing, I think, said that, you know, that it's not a consumer, it's your mum or it's whatever it was, you know. And I think that, I think that you know, that, that um, the ad business is quick to educate you on what it thinks good work is and what good work looks like, whatever that is. And I think that, you know, actually what is desperately lacking in, in any creative business is always the, well, I, I see it differently. I think that's looking really tired and I think that's looking really interesting and that resonates with me learning to articulate your own instincts around creative judgment is good and just generally that a lot of people in business that are experts in things don't know as much and I think it goes for any industry don't know as much as you as you think what you're seeing with those beginner eyes is really valid and you can have a level of a level of confidence in that um, it's probably what I, you know probably what I take on board I think probably spent a, an amount of time, you know, the amazing thing about having brilliant training is you learn so much so quickly. And then the downside of it actually is a lot of that training you have to throw away as you go, you have to sort of learn it and then forget it and go past it. Mm. Um, so mixing the two, you know, quite healthy. And I think that's where finding a few people that you really get on with who are a bit more experienced that you can have that chat with and go, I don't, I think that's rubbish, isn't it? Well, let, let me tell you, you know, and kick it around back and forward is a very precious, rare and precious and good thing to try and try and seek out. You know, I think you're, you know, you're, what you think of something is pretty valid from the get go. It's one of the fun things about one of the fun things about advertising is everyone's an expert <laughs> from <laughs> day one, right? Because yeah. you're like like anyone else, you, you're ex exposed sure. to it. And um, I'm always one of the first things. It's one of the things I noticed in the change of the. You know, changing of the model. You, you ask, say, uh, when, when I first began, we, I, I did grad recruitment for a while, in five or six years, I was head of grad recruitment. And you say, okay, what's your favorite? Tell me some of your favorite brands. I'd love to hear, and I want to know what's exciting. And people go, oh, Nike, yeah. and I really like your work with Marmite. Or, right. You know, I think uh, I like the whatever campaign from these. And what you kind of noticed was, People didn't really have an answer. So, what are you talking about, brands? I don't really 
I don't follow what <laughs> you know. There's brands I buy, sure, and I'm and I'm fans of those brands, right. maybe, and I, and I might be this week, and I might not be next week. Right. Um, but it was quite you know what you weren't getting was this sort of brands in popular culture as a natural part of the you know what ads did you what ads did you watch and I think there's some numbers on that but the, you know there's a teacher I've asked what's better the ads or the programs and it's been in decline since the late nineties you know, so that, that so that kind of um, you know the as more valid than ever like people are going I don't know what you're I don't know why you're asking that question so then it becomes okay what brands do you buy. Mm. Um, how have you ended up buying them? Do you know? Can you remember? And um, what's kind of interesting about what might have influenced you along the way uh, suddenly becomes the question over, oh, I love that ad, therefore I love that brand, you know. Um, and people I'd, you know, people will pick things like Supreme. Like the, the trouble is they slightly try to, they try to give you the answer you're looking for. Sure. So they, they study up on it. But that's the big fascination is the breakup of the brands you like are the brands that are in your feed right now that you're following that have got a, that you have a strong relationship with because they are passionate about something you're mm. passionate about, mm. whether it's sustainable clothes or whether it's um, a musical instrument or um, Meat printing. Free burgers. Or yeah. Go down the list. It's whatever. Beyond Burgers it's really, fun. really good, by the way. Beyond Burgers. We are, we're, of course, um, partners with Vivera, so we would plug Vivera. <laughs> right. Okay, the, of course. As the yeah, as the meat meat free option of choice, right? Of course, <laughs> but other options are available. Other products are available. I I, be, I believe there are some minor others. <laughs> really interesting, Jonathan. I've really enjoyed speaking to you. Thank you so much for doing this. Hope you or someone gets something out of it. And uh, thanks for having me. We have been speaking with Jonathan Trimble. He is currently the CEO of Anne Rising. If you enjoyed this conversation, then head over to Apple Podcasts where you can listen to over 100 conversations now we've had with leaders in sales, marketing, AI, and machine learning. Thank you for all your feedback and suggestions on LinkedIn and email. Write to me, Nathan at agencydealmasters.com. Please head over to iTunes and leave us a review. Follow me on Twitter at Nathan Anibaba. We would be unable to do this show without our very own Deal Masters. Ahmed Ahmed is our editor. Christoph Blaschek is our booker slash project manager. Marian Begum is our head of research. I'm Nathan Anibaba. You've been listening to Agency Dealmasters. Benchpress 2021 is now open. It is the largest survey of independent agency owners in the UK, and it's your chance to benchmark yourself against your peers. You'll receive a copy of the full benchmark results as a thank you for taking part. By taking part, you'll be able to compare yourself against your peers in several key areas, including hourly rates and profitability and sales performance. You'll also discover what the top performers do differently, insights that will have the power to transform your agency. The link to complete the survey is in the description.